This is not the media. This is hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. This week's question from hell is, what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? What should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? And we would like to keep half of the answers, at the very most, to not being pot-related. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Protect yourself from the virus while explaining to that freaking pathogen how you feel about the global pandemic. With the words, this is hell across your face. Protect yourself from the police while telling them how you feel about the police state. Protect yourself from surveillance cameras while telling those who run intrusive systems that violate our right to privacy. Tell them exactly what you think of their big brother operation and attitude. All you have to do is be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. Or if you can't wait to see if you've won and you want a damn mask, go to thisishell.com and click on support. That's thisishell.com and then click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answers by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, how our listener is answering the question from hell so far. This week's question from hell is, what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain, his perpetual stomach pain? Jason L. says, change his eating habits to a steady diet of the rich. I like that. Uh, Gar M. says, CBD colonic. Oh, Jesus. See? I told you. Uh, Craig S. says, if heroin was good enough for Kurt. <laughs> uh, Pete V. says. I've always thought that if I won the lottery, like you had to be on stage for winning like $340 million. And they said, what's the first thing you're going to do? I'd say, now that I can afford it, I'm going to be a heroin addict. I've been waiting to win the lottery. Uh, Pete V. says, stab yourself in the thigh. <laughs> Adam S. says, need to, ba- uh, need to balance your humors. Leeches? <laughs> uh, Dan K. says, commit Sudoku. John T-, John T says, browse social media. It is often soothing to hear from your friends. <laughs> oh, that's what happens on social media. I wasn't aware. Uh, Steve C says, the Expelliarmus spell, preferably administered by an accredited wizard. I had no idea there would be a Harry Potter reference during this. I, didn't, I had no idea that was a Harry Potter reference. I d- I'm assuming, dude. I'm just assuming, right? Uh, well, if it's a place where wizards need to be accredited. It's either uh, that or Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, right? Then finally, uh, Ronaldo M says, wouldn't hurt to stop eating animals. <laughs> yeah, but they're so delicious. Alex will have more of your, and I need protein. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page or DM them to us via Twitter. Just have them to us by the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, because we are going to be announcing this week's question from hell winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. So get your answers in now. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell first. Let's take care of the hangover left from yesterday's show when I mentioned a New York Times column on police impunity and immunity from the law. Yesterday, in a monologue where I was attempting to reveal at last some of my biases so you can take those into consideration, into account when listening to This Is Hell, I mentioned an op-ed in Sunday's New York Times by Genia Belafonte. Genia's writing reveals a bias I have when it comes to what the media loves to call violence but is mere vandalism. Gina, Genia writes that at some point history may show us that after years of aggression, after so much brutality that suggested so little fear of repercussion, 
It took the looting of a Chanel store and the reversion of Soho to a wasteland to disable a law that has made real police accountability so difficult in New York City. It required a political class moved by fear of disorder and desecration rather than compelled by the logic of justice which had been apparent for so long. All those attempts at nonviolent action to make sure that we would have some sort of police reform, some sort of reigning in the police, it never worked. But in this case, aggression worked, but I'm not going to call what happened to the Chanel store violence, because violence and vandalism should not be equated. It's dehumanizing and makes the value of human life equal to a broken window or graffiti. When the CNN reporter was in near tears at the sight of the front doors of CNN being tagged, while burning cars raged in the background and people were fleeing from the black smoke as police were confronting them violently, that epitomizes this view in the media that property damage is as bad as your head being damaged by a cop wielding a baton. By definition, violence is physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. You can't kill an inanimate thing or a store. They are not living beings to begin with, and viewing them as such is prioritizing profits over people, which, as Henry Giraud pointed out last week, is the epitome of fascism, prioritizing capital over human life. You know, like Fox News was doing when they were promoting the idea that the cure of taking safety precautions to prevent contracting the Rona, including closing businesses, was actually worse than the disease, which has killed 114,000 people in the United States. I know we all have this feeling that the virus is waning down here in the States. Despite at this moment, the virus is actually at its worst globally, according to the WHO. But things here are not going as well as we may think. The U.S. passed 100,000 COVID-19 deaths on May 28th. That was exactly two weeks ago. The U.S. has averaged roughly 1,000 deaths a day since then. That is an average daily death toll that is remarkably close to what it was before we reached 100,000 dead, as some states were already reopening and others were set to do so. In fact, it might even be a higher average daily death toll, it, depending on what day you believe that the death toll starts. If this rate of death continues, we will double the 100,000 death total for a couple by a couple of weeks before Labor Day. So like around August 24th, we'll have twice as many deaths as we already have. Of course, the humidity of the summer makes the air heavier and the virus less likely to spread. But the prioritizing of profits over people that is repeated on Fox News daily, if not hourly, is the definition of fascism's inhumanity. While violence is doing harm to someone, vandalism is very different. Vandalism is destruction of property and equating the harming of a human being to the damage to a non-living, breathing thing is the, the ultimate epitome of the callous brutality of vicious sadism that fuels racism, hatred, violence, and cruelty to your fellow human. So yes, I'm biased toward human beings and for far more concerned about violence committed to actual people than I am a store being burned to the ground. If our political dividing line today is what we value more, people or property, I know what side I'm on. And I'm incredibly frightened by the fact that not everybody would be on my side, that there are human beings who value something over other humans' lives. But that wasn't even the point of Genius Column. The crux of her writing was the impunity of police and how secrecy projects uh, secrecy protects them from being held accountable for their physical abuse of the citizenry of us. Genia writes, 
For several years, there has been no work more vital to ending police brutality than abolishing laws and policies that weaken transparency and soften repercussion. Chief among them are the statutes like 50A in New York City that enshrine police misconduct in New York State, I should say, that enshrine police misconduct and secrecy, shielding the personnel and disciplinary records of police officers from public view so that there's often no way for a victim to know if an abusive officer has a history of dubious behavior unless someone has happened to sue him. So you get beat up by a cop, their record can't be used against them. But you can be damn sure that if you have any kind of record of any arrest or anything that you're even suspected of doing, it's going to come up at your hearing or trial to undermine your claims of police brutality while the police officer's history remains unknown to the court. Genia explains why such laws are on the books. Quote, Privacy regulations around police conduct originated for the most part during the high crime era of the 1970s at the insistence of police unions, who apparently wanted to be more aggressive and violent. At the moment it came under review in 1976, a prosecutor named Joseph P. Hoey was virtually alone in opposing the legislation on the grounds that it would eventually sow public mistrust, which is exactly what it has done. Sure, people of color, and especially the black community, as well as the LGBTQI community, have distrusted the police for a very long time, so Hoey is clearly concerned about losing the trust of white people in the police, which has apparently finally happened in the protests against the murder of George Floyd. This kind of secrecy, secrecy of a police officer's history can lead to serial, serial abusers on the police force, and that is exactly what it has done in New York City. Again, Genia writing, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's unwavering defense of the police department as officers have plowed into protesters and freely dispensed pepper spray surprised many New Yorkers, but in his commitment to the blue wall, the code of circus, secrecy, from which 50A is the foundation, his loyalties have been quite clear. Four years ago, the Legal Aid Society sued the city in order to obtain a summary of claims and disciplinary actions against Daniel Pantaleo, the officer whose chokehold led to the death of Eric Garner in 2014. Mr. Pantaleo remained on the force for five years after the tragedy when a judge ruled in favor of legal aid. The city did not honor the decision and release the documents, but instead chose to appeal it. Mr. Pantaleo was eventually dismissed, but not before paperwork pertaining to the case was leaked to the, pro the website Think Progress, indicating that there had been a litany of misconduct complaints filed against him, including charges of abusive stop-and-frisk tactics. City officials did not respond passively. To the contrary, a city watchdog agency opened an investigation to uncover the identity of the whistleblower and then force the person to resign, a decision supported by the mayor. Yes, Mayor Bill de Blasio did his best to keep the abusive cop who murdered Eric Garner on the police force, even firing the person who bravely blew the whistle on a deadly cop, being shielded from justice by a mayor. So I sent an email to a contributor on our show, Flint Taylor, who was on the team of attorneys who held the Chicago Police Department responsible for the assassination of Fred Hampton and also helped take down Chicago Police Commander John Burge, who was held responsible for torturing detainees as well as a lifelong career of fighting for police. Uh, Flint also has a lifelong career of fighting for police abuse victims' lives. He's currently on the Marcus Smith legal team, as Yes Weekly reports. Marcus Smith died after being hogtied by eight Greensboro, North Carolina police officers during the 2018 Greensboro Folk Festival. The officers held Smith's face down on Church Street and applied a restraint device to attach his ankles to his handcuffs. 
On police body camera video, Smith cries in pain, gasps, help me, and appears to stop breathing. After his death was ruled a homicide by the state medical examiner, the city released a compilation video of the body camera footage prefaced with a former Greensboro Police Department Chief Wayne Scott giving a description of the death that is contradicted by the individual videos. Yes, the police chief lied about the videos that he then showed to the public. I wondered if the city of Chicago has the same kind of 50A law that protects criminally abusive police from justice. And I sent an email to Flint Taylor asking just that. I want to know if not only Chicago, but elsewhere, as Flint has worked in New Orleans, Milwaukee, Chicago, Greensboro, and many other cities and to fight police violence, if all municipalities have yet another level of impunity and immunity for cops by keeping their records of abusing citizens' secret. Flint replied, First, could you send me contact information on my sister Brown University grad who talked about imperialism last week? That was our uh, interview from last Monday on unlearning imperialism with Ariella Aisha Azale on her book, Potential History, which considering how the fight against imperialism keeps coming up and has come up a few times since last Monday, including when we talked to Yannick Marshall yesterday, I cannot, cannot recommend enough. Listen to the interview, which is at thisishell.com, but more importantly, read Ariella's book. Flint continues, you could do a whole show on your question about police record secrecy. There has been a great deal of litigation over this issue in Illinois. The Invisible Institute, run by past This Is Hell guest Jamie Calvin, led the most recent change and won its case. We here at the People's Law Office were also involved, Flint writes, concerning the public release of disciplinary files and repeater beater lists a few years ago. The city conceded before it was decided by the Illinois Supreme Court. Hence, you can go to the Invisible Institute website to see Dirty Cops records. We also won the issue earlier as to the torture disciplinary records and have been fighting against the secrecy of police disciplinary records since time immemorial or thereabouts. The Fraternal Order of Police, the Chicago Police Department's union and four other departments around the country, puts the secrecy and uh, destruction of disciplinary records after five years provisions in the contracts wherever and whenever it can. Lobbies for secrecy legislation statewide and city and police lawyers always seek to impose with court approval the most restrictive protective orders, i.e. secrecy from the public possible in police violence cases. That's right. For those of you who already did not know, the police union does everything it can to protect suspected criminals who have committed violence against the citizens. They have taken a vow, a pledge to serve and protect. And there's nothing quite like serving up the public with a heaping load of violence and then protecting the people who committed that egregious, potentially deadly abuse and crime. This is not justice and it is definitely not law enforcement because instead of enforcing the law, the police are doing everything they can to protect a violent criminal who they're harboring within their midst, a criminal offense in itself. Flint adds there are also exceptions in the federal and state FOIAs that the police and city lawyers use to block the Sunshine Laws. I know there are secrecy provisions of one kind or another in North Carolina and Wisconsin, and we may have to fight the issue in North Carolina in the Marcus Smith Say His Name case. Flint also sent me his statement in support of Marcus Smith on Sunday's protest in Greensboro. Here's the Marcus Smith legal team's statement. We fully support the protesters naming of Marcus Smith together with many other black victims of police suffocation and asphyxiation including George Floyd in Minneapolis, Eric Garner in New York City, Derek Williams in Milwaukee as victims of racist and illegal police violence and we call on Mayor Nancy Vaughn of Greensboro 
and the Greensboro police chief and the Greensboro newspaper, the News and Record, to emphatically and definitively follow suit. We also f- fully support the protesters' demand for full and complete reparations for the brutal, inhumane, and racist police violence and killing of Marcus Smith, including a full and public mayoral and police apology that includes an admission of the GPDs, Greensboro Police Department's cover-up of the truth under former Chief Wayne Scott, public memorial commemorating Marcus Smith, disciplinary action against all of the city and county officers involved, and an independent criminal investigation by a special prosecutor. And that would all sound great in the case of George Floyd as well. So yes, in many places across the United States, police are protected from having the record of police abuse made public during police abuse trials. And when the public demands transparency, either the police union refuses to allow justice to be pursued, or the city government does everything it can to hide their police from accountability for their potentially deadly actions. Until we end the impunity of police, their impunity from being fired, from having their pensions taken from them, from having their potentially abusive records held against them, and the physical impunity they wield through an overly militarized police who are no longer the neighborhood corner beat cop, but the anti-personnel carrier with a machine gun on the roof. This is hell coming up on This is Hell. Stranger danger is a lie. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host. Chuck Mertz producing is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. The fear of stranger danger implanted into kids was meant as a way to protect them from abduction, potential sexual abuse, and even murder. Parents warned their children to never talk to a stranger, and if a stranger dared speak to you, look out, they're probably planning on killing you. So what happens when we have generations of people growing up believing everyone they do not know is a threat, a deadly threat, when the real threat is actually the people they do know, including their family and friends. And what impact might that have on childhood, parenting, and the way we view justice? Here to help us understand the intense legacy of Stranger Danger, historian Paul M. Renfro is author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State. Paul is assistant professor of history at Florida State University and co-editor of the 2019 collection Growing Up America, Youth and Politics Since 1945, which he co-edited with Susan eckelman Bergel and Sarah Feldston. You can find Feldston. You can follow Paul on Twitter at PM Renfro. Paul, welcome to This Is Hell. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. This is a really, really interesting book because it's something I've always thought about. I've never really understood why this is so over, so overdone with Stranger Danger. When I was a kid in Detroit, there was this rumor about a green gremlin with a hockey stripe <laughs> on it that looked like Starsky and Hutch's stripe that was going around and abducting kids. And my neighborhood, all of the kids in my neighborhood were freaked out. And every time we saw any gremlin, and keeping in mind that I'm colorblind, it was a very, very frightening time <laughs> as a little kid. So you write about the 1981 abduction of six-year-old Adam Walsh from a Florida shopping mall and the eventual discovery of the child's decapitated body. Adam is the son of John and Reve Walsh. The husband and wife's public search for their son led to a numerous media appearances following confirmation that the body was their son's. There were two made-for-TV movies about the abduction. John Walsh would become the host of America's Most Wanted, which launched in 87 and ran for 24 years. John had similar series, and he still has a show, a documentary series on CNN called The Hunt with John Walsh. You cite 
Carrie A. Rentschler, writing in the 2011 book Second Wounds, Victims' Rights and the Media in the U.S., that since the early 1980s, when victims' rights crystallized as a national discourse, Walsh's celebrity has depended largely on the vigilantism, tough guy image and criticism of conventional law enforcement strategies. Let's just wait there for a moment. How much do you think stranger danger has led to the tough, the more tough guy image that we do see of the police, the more militarized image that we do see of the police. There's a famous late 1970s, early 80s Barney Miller episode where the, the whole episode is about how they do not want to wear bulletproof vests because they feel like they are indestructible. They can kill anybody. So how much did, or in what way did stranger danger potentially lead to not only tough guy policing, but the militarization of police? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that the the imagery of, and I talk about this in the book, the imagery of endangered childhood, which kind of crystallized in this moment, I argue, this is essential to this kind of buildup of the carceral state. Um, and you see it kind of suffuse the discourse of the thin blue line. Uh, now, you know, this idea that um, you know, on the opposite side of this thin blue line is is chaos and disorder. And you see a lot of that anxiety also in some responses, even by Democrats, to calls to defund the police or abolish the police. There's this notion that that will inevitably lead to basically the purge, you know, that that film series. And I think the the imagery of, of the child, of, of Adam Walsh, of Aton Pates, of children who appear a certain way and who kind of connote something or, or conjure something that is kind of distinctly American or distinctly kind of white American and middle class and suburban in a way, um, that is very much kind of, um, I think, uh, quintessential, or, or I should say kind of uh, paramount in, in these cons- these considerations. Um, and it's, it's always, if not bubbling, you know, under the surface, it is right in front of you whenever anybody is kind of um, talking about law and order or um, uh, getting tough on crime. You know, you have to ensure that certain people are safe and those certain people inevitably are those who are understood to be most vulnerable and those are obviously coded as white and middle class and oftentimes young. And that's something I I sought to kind of um, unearth in this study. And I definitely want to get to that point about how children are often employed as political pawns or political tools in a way. But last week, you were mentioning uh, victims' rights. Last Wednesday, a week ago today, we spoke with sociologist Sarah Beth Kaufman, author of American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. Sarah Beth argues, especially when it comes to capital punishment, Victims' rights have gone too far, which I believe is something that you also agree with. That, depending Mm -hmm. upon the trial performance of the victim's family, their attendance, appearance, and particularly their normative behavior, that has an outweighed influence on capital sentencing. How would you assess the influence of victims' rights on justice? Has it gone too far, not far enough? Is it just right for us today? Because victims' rights sounds good, but what's its impact on justice? Because, I mean, the phrase sounds great, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't want to protect victims? Um, And as Rentschler argues and others argue, it's kind of at this moment that Reagan and other folks on the right very much co-opt or adopt this kind of mantle of of uh, fighting for victims. And there are various measures that that Reagan institutes. 
And I think this is kind of um, embedded in a lot of the, the cultural texts that I talk about in in the book, uh, whether it's America's Most Wanted, which you mentioned, or, or cops, you know, there is this very kind of binary notion of, and this is not necessarily brand new in the early 80s, uh, and Rentschler actually talks about how the victims' rights movement began kind of, um, you know, formally in the 1960s, but it wasn't as kind of punitive, it wasn't as draconian, and premised on law and order as it became. Um, and you know, I think I mentioned it was it's binary. And I think that that notion is so deeply ingrained in the American psyche uh, that it's going to be very tough to kind of dismantle. But it is, again, not like not unlike the notion of white childhood as being imperiled and in need of defense. Um, there is this racialized kind of gendered notion of the victim that is central to uh, discourses concerning the buildup of the carceral state, of the police state, the notion that um, police are protecting and serving, they're protecting and serving victims. And, you know, people in restorative justice movements, in transformative justice movements, they talk a lot about victimization and survival, uh, but they do talk about how it's not necessarily as, as uh, dichotomous or kind of fixed, right? They, they talk about how there should be this sort of understanding that um, you know, nobody is a pure victim. Nobody is a pure uh, perpetrator. Maybe in terms of certain crimes, you know, yes, maybe this individual was victimized in this way. But, um, you know, and this is not to kind of blame the victim, but to say that it's more nuanced and uh, what they seek in, in their activism is – um, more of a discourse between victimized individuals who have been wronged, individuals who have been harmed, and those who have harmed them or uh, done wrong. You know, how how can you kind of reach uh, some sort of uh, understanding, um, hold the person who has committed uh, a certain offense, a certain transgression to account? Uh, so, you know, there's, I think, Implicit in the idea that everyone or that certain people are victims is the idea that the only response is you have to lock up the people who are not victim or who are um, victimizers, and that I think leaves um, that doesn't necessarily lead to any kind of reconciliation or meaningful reconciliation, and in fact it inflicts its own harm. And there's not a whole lot I think of discussion of that in the popular discourse um, concerning kind of how the carceral state and the police state uh, actually commit harm and they perpetrate harm on people who may have done things wrong, um, but they nevertheless are being victimized again, right? They are um, subject to this violence that is enacted through policing, through surveillance, through incarceration. And I think that there's also this um, this notion of just kind of invisibilizing or obscuring precisely what or forgetting about or not acknowledging precisely what jails and prisons look like or even what probation and parole look like. Um, these are incredibly violent, dreadful institutions. And the notion that, that a victim is kind of served by caging somebody uh, for life or for a really long time, um, you know, I think that that's kind of at the heart of victims' rights, at least as it has sort of emerged and um, consolidated in, in the 90s, uh, since, since the 80s, I should say. Um, and it's something that needs to, I think, be addressed. But again, I think as you've suggested, it's almost impossible politically to do that, to say it's an unassailable sort of 
um, posture to say, I am victimized, I need some sort of uh, retribution. Uh, but I think it is um, essential, especially at this political moment, this historical moment, to, to address that. And But one of the weird things about this situation is that John Walsh, he went on to have this career as what you would call a moral entrepreneur, where he was fighting against not just the abduction and killing of kids, as a horrible crime that happened to his son Adam, but also the sexual abuse, which did not occur during the crime committed against Adam Walsh. You write, the Walsh Act enhanced the federal penalties for failure to register as a sex offender, allowed for the federal prosecution of state sex offenders for for failure to register pursuant to interjurisdictional or foreign travel, widened the range of offenses for which adults could be forced to register to include possession of child pornography and standardized the information to be obtained from offenders for online publication and dissemination. Is this kind of sharing of offender information unique to all other crimes? And why do we seemingly punish sex offenders with this kind of lifelong punishment of informing others about their crimes, while, say, murderers or spousal abusers or gun law violators or those who have attacked their neighbors? You know, that's the kind of information I'd like to know. I don't really, you know, the sex offender next door, I don't know. The murderer next door, I'd kind of like to know about that. Yeah, it is. um, Yeah, murderers, I think, are not really placed on a registry. Um, Yeah, it is somewhat unique, um, at least in this historical moment. Um, there are earlier antecedents, um, for this sort of registry, people who had committed other crimes in, in the thirties and forties, they might have been placed on some sort of list. Um, and of course, you know, lists have this really, um, dreadful history, um, you know, kind of cataloging those who have transgressed in some way, at least according to the state. Um, but beginning in the, the mid-80s, kind of against the backdrop of the stranger danger cases I outline here and also the, the satanic abuse kind of panic uh, concerning, you know, uh, children being abused ostensibly, but most of this was uh, discredited or disproven uh, in daycare centers um, against that and this sort of renewed also discussion of of sexual abuse more broadly. Uh, There was this notion of sex offenders as exceptional and especially kind of pedophiles as as exceptional. And that has a deeper history as well, this idea that pedophiles or or so-called sex offenders are, there's a kind of medicalization or pathologization um, of their behavior. There's this idea that they kind of sit outside of the realm of normative sexuality. They are, you know, they have a disease that really can't be cured. Uh, And that, I think, is central to the project of sex offender registration. And this began to be adopted by certain states uh, in in the late 80s. uh, And it became federalized in the 1990s, or I should say that there's the the federal crime bill of 1994, you know, the very infamous crime bill that mandated the national adoption of these sorts of registries only for these sorts of crimes. Um, That is kind of all, all sex crimes. And thus all states, if they wanted federal funding, needed to incorporate these sorts of registries and they needed to, um, to maintain these sorts of registries. And they've they've grown uh, since then. Uh, the number of people 
represented on these lists has grown as well. As you indicated, there are subsequent acts that serve to augment uh, registration as a practice, uh, increase the, the number of penalties for which one might be forced to register. And that has led to something like 900,000 people now being in the United States registered uh, as so-called sex offenders. And the problem therein, I mean, there are myriad problems um, therein, but um, at the heart of that is this notion that, you know, one, um, a sex offender is, you know, a very capacious category. It's a very broad category. And that's not to say that all the folks who are represented on these lists uh, ha are nonviolent or haven't committed certain acts. You know, there's this canard that a lot of people sort of employ, which is that it, a lot of so-called, I mean, public urinators, for instance, might be represented on these lists or people who went streaking, you know, in college or something, they might appear on those lists. Um, you know, that is kind of the exception. You know, those that's not really the, the, the sort of crime uh, for which people are often forced to register. Uh, but it does kind of point to this larger dilemma, which is that, you know, sex offender can include uh, or does include this wide range of different offenses. Many of them don't even involve uh, minors or don't even involve kind of a, a clear victim uh, to get back to that discourse of, of victimhood. Um, you know, for instance, those who possess computer generated child pornography, meaning pornography that doesn't depict uh, any flesh and blood child, any real child, might be forced to register. Um, those who obviously, as the, the Dateline NBC to Catch a Predator program illustrated quite clearly, those who go to meet up with minors or those posing as minors might be forced to register. So that is one reason why um, this registry has, has grown so, um, so large. And why um, I think because the sex offender is so uniquely reviled and there are so few efforts to sort of name this kind of um, uh, injustice, um, there are very few politicians or other elected officials or, you know, individuals who are willing to kind of speak up for these folks. And I think that's um, a shame in this moment where there is kind of a, a brewing sort of understanding that something has to change. I haven't heard, at least from my vantage, a lot of people kind of including folks who are so reviled in these kinds of uh, conversations. So what would you say to somebody who doesn't mind that the instance of child abduction leading to sexual abuse and murder by strangers, that the instance of stranger danger is exaggerated. You point out that 93% of child abductions are actually done by family or friends. A very small amount around the area of about 100 or so every year are in the stranger danger part. Uh, or section or category of kind of abuse and abduction. So to uh, what impact does that have on the way that we view uh, safety, security, crime? What difference does it make that we just over-exaggerate this one crime and under-exaggerate the other? Well, it misrepresents the threats that face children. If people actually were concerned, and many people are concerned with sexual harm, obviously, of children, but 
the the registry and community notification, these sorts of mechanisms totally misrepresents the, the threat. It is not, as you indicated, um, the stranger. It's not the individual who lives down the street who needs to be um, you know, registered and whose activities need to be monitored. The, the threat actually lies within the home. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting or, you know, kind of tragic that the home and the family, a particular kind of family, these are the things that are understood to be antidotes to stranger danger. You know, watch after your kids. Um, you know, if you have a loving home uh, with, uh, you know, two parents who are in a loving marriage, then this kind of thing probably won't happen. And it obviously kind of conceals the fact that all this really bad stuff does happen in the home, that the home is a very dangerous space. Um, and even, and if it's not in the home, then there are, uh, you're far more likely if you're a child to be exploited by an acquaintance than you are a stranger. So somebody in in school, you know, somebody at your church or your synagogue, um, you know, you're more likely, far more likely uh, to be exploited or uh, harmed by those sorts of folks. But generally, because uh, so many individuals are not forced to register, you know, they, they haven't been accused, they haven't been convicted. Um, the, the sex offender registry seems to give comfort to people who think that it is kind of exhaustive, it is comprehensive. And nothing could be further from the truth. And also, uh, just to kind of circle back to what I was saying earlier, there's a suggestion that uh, these crimes are kind of irredeemable, that this sort of, um, you know, if you are a sex offender, you have a particular kind of psychology and you can't be treated and you're likely to reoffend. This is just not true, at least according to available statistics. Um, you know, recidivism rates for those who have been convicted of sex crimes are, are among the lowest um, in kind of the, the, the pantheon of, of different offenses. Uh, so, you know, the registry has all these sorts of contradictions. And I think to your point in this last question, yes, it kind of suggests that the, the home is a sanctuary that the family can help to insulate children from these sorts of things when it's kind of exactly the opposite. Right. And that, that's the thing I don't get. You know, if the statistics show one thing and then you have John Walsh promoting another idea, why wouldn't Walsh and other child safety advocates instead be pushing a message not of stranger danger, but, I don't know, family fear? What impact do you think this kind of paranoia based on exaggeration leading to re real fears that guide your life as a child? To what extent did that prime the U.S.? for the expanded power of things like conspiracy theories, the greater influence of, you know, completely unfounded rumors on the U.S. as a whole, both politically, culturally, and socially. How much do you think this primed the pump for us to believe in all of this misleading junk that people believe in nowadays? I think it played a, a huge part. It's kind of at the uh, beginning of the the tabloidization of, of news media, not to suggest that there, there was none of that Prior, but the you know at the outset of this study, you know this begins in 1979. Um, you're beginning to see the consolidation of a 24-hour news cycle 
with the advent of, of CNN and, and other texts that are quite clearly kind of obviously trying to get eyes on the screen. And that leads to, yes, increased sensationalization, uh, increased tabloid-like uh, style in various programs you see in the 80s, I believe the 80s or maybe the early 90s, the rise of programs like Inside Edition or Hard Copy. Um, or a current affair, right? Um, these are obviously highly kind of stylized and very sensationalized. And they, not exclusively, but they do uh, focus on these sorts of cases. And you see that even today. I mean, these uh, these sorts of cases almost invariably involving uh, a photogenic white child or a, a white woman uh, who is also photogenic or telegenic. These are the sorts of cases, and this is especially true, at least in my mind, uh, kind of in the, and I write about this in the book, in the early 2000s, um, you know, you had the the Natalie Holloway case, which uh, took up all this, all this airtime. Um, and you see it even today, you know, this morning I saw another story about the, the kids in Idaho, um, and this is actually a family danger case, but I would submit that this is actually the the exception and not the rule. You know, it's mostly your stranger danger cases that kind of um, that that uh, serve as the sorts of um, subjects that that these sorts of texts um, focus on. And I think that does kind of prime the public to to think about the outside world as especially dangerous. And that kind of increasing exaggeration um, or um, increasing sensationalization of news media encourages them to maybe question uh, the validity of, of those sources, right? Um, they're always looking for the, uh, to kind of test the outer limits of what is viable and what is, you know, truth. Um, so, you know, that I think has has proven really instrumental in, in the making of, you know, say, um, you know, an Alex Jones or, or all these other sorts of media uh, outlets, right, that have, uh, or entities that have really kind of trafficked in this sort of really sordid stuff. So raise your kids on stranger danger and you might be raising a conspiracy theorist. You write that the image of endangered childhood announced to the American public the supposed ubiquity of the stranger danger threat, as well as its ability to shatter the racialized and classed idol of childhood innocence, as you were mentioning earlier, was an existential threat to the end of childhood innocence as we know it conjured up. And what impact did that threat have on child innocence? Because I can't help but think that a made-up threat to childhood innocence led parents and children in society to react in a way that ended childhood innocence. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that people still kind of traffic in that idea of, of childhood innocence. And of course, there's plenty of data to suggest that uh, people understand these things in very racialized and, and classed ways. Um, you know, black children, for instance, are often understood to be by the the uh, general public more likely to be, uh, you know, uh, have criminal elements or partake in, in criminal behaviors. Uh, and people, audiences are far more likely to um, understand black children as being older than they actually are. So they don't get included in that. But I think innocence is still a very, uh, and childhood innocence in particular is still a very potent uh, political trope or, or football, right? People still like to deploy that. And, and there's very little 
effort, and it kind of circles back to our conversation of, of victimhood, there's very little effort to to critique it, to kind of think, okay, I mean, what, what do we mean by innocence? You know, why is this individual innocent? Um, and I mean, I, I don't know if it's it's ended. You know, I, I, I'm not a parent myself, and I don't uh, intend to be. Uh, but you know, I think that it's still um, one way in which people, parents, conceive of their children. I, I don't think that many would uh, would argue that their children are not innocent. Um, and yeah, innocent is innocence is political, and it is uh, quite dangerous. It can be dangerous, right? Um, the the child as an emblem. Um, the innocent child, as and I think this was central to uh, the, the George W. Bush administration, and it's and I've written about this elsewhere. It's uh, efforts in in the Middle East, right? Um, the idea is that there are these innocent, impressionable children, and they need to be insulated from, safeguarded from, from certain threats. And of course, the threats are racialized, and they they serve to kind of mobilize a population to support. War, so I don't know if the and maybe I'm mischaracterizing your question or misunderstanding it, but I'm not sure if the potency of of innocence has kind of uh, worn off. I was just thinking about the idea of childhood innocence, where you can just go outside and do whatever you want to do, and now that they're completely policed, that kind of innocence and that kind of surveillance may lead to a a life that is more guided by fear than innocence. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, and I don't know to what extent, and I kind of talk about this a bit in the book, to what extent that previous sort of model, you know, the idea of free-range childhood as kind of hegemonic and ubiquitous, I don't know to what extent that's actually true, but that's the memory, right? That's how, you know, and I was born in, in the late 80s, and I don't remember anything kind of other than this, and maybe it speaks more to kind of my parents than it does um, the, the historical moment, uh, but, you know, I actually think that it's a bit of both. Um, you know, I don't remember kind of, um, I was always to, to remain kind of on, um, the street right in front of my parents' house. I, I wasn't to, to venture off, you know, and, and that does kind of serve to prevent people from individuating, from, uh, finding themselves in a way, uh, and then learning, right? And of course there's been a pushback and I also write about this in the book. There have been efforts, um, by Lenore Skenazy and others to, um, uh, to support or endorse this model of free-range childhood, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know when when exactly that kind of model fell by the wayside. But people, I think, imagine, and I think that's just as powerful. People imagine it kind of ending in the '80s, and and people did start to, I think, parent in different ways, right? Um, but that's not to say that in the '70s or in the '60s everyone was just kind of um, you know free-range and everything was hunky-dory. Um, but, and there's also, and I think this is kind of implicit in your question as well, there was this idea that uh, the world got more dangerous. And I think that's kind of uh, fundamental to the book. There's this idea that, you know, before, say, 1979 or before the 80s, uh, things were more peaceful and children could, without fear of exploitation, kind of uh, run around uh, in the neighborhood. And I think that is an incredibly potent political idea, and it's one that obviously, and I'm, you know, I'm sure your listeners know this, is 
refuted by the sheer fact that violent crime, or at least statistics, show that violent crime uh, has diminished in the United States over the past 20 years or so. But um, there, I think, is this kind of residual, and I think Donald Trump exemplifies this very clearly, there's this idea that we're still living in kind of the late 1980s or um, you know the, the early 1990s, and, it, and especially kind of in this urban context, you know, we're still living in the context in which uh, the Central Park Five case happened and, and Donald Trump called for their execution. Um, he, I think, has and many others kind of of that generation have carried that idea with them. And it serves to shape their politics and it serves to shape their understanding of who is a victim who is not a victim, who is kind of a, a victimizer, who is a, a maker and a taker to use Paul Ryan's formulation. Um, and yeah, so it's not just kind of stranger danger or child kidnapping. It, it kind of, um, you know, cascades out into all these different issues concerning crime and deservingness and citizenship and innocence. Um, so that's kind of one thing that I was hoping to get at in the book. Yeah, I live in a predominantly uh, immigrant neighborhood. And I live on a park, and I watch the uh, neighborhood and the community out in the park on a regular basis. And for whatever reason, it always makes me feel really good when I see often, you know, uh, first first generation immigrants having their kids just running around the park without any parental supervision. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. it's it's an amazing and it's just a, a joyous thing to see kids without having their parents right there. You point out that the regime has also facilitated the regime of child protection has also facilitated the development of products and practices intended to safeguard kids from stranger danger. Uh, ranging from the commonplace child fingerprinting drives of the early 1980s to Amber Alerts, these mechanisms have rendered normative and commonsensical the heightened surveillance of children, both by family and community members and abetted by the state. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I was talking to my then 16-year-old nephew. He told me all of his friends' families had smart speakers, and I asked if he was concerned about that level of surveillance. He told me it didn't make any difference because nobody has any privacy anymore. <laughs> How much did Stranger Danger normalize the end of our privacy? Um, I mean, I think it's central to this as well. Um, you know, I I talked about this with uh, another interviewer about, um, you know, the, the rise of, of um, Ring and these other sorts of surveillance mechanisms and, you know, for the home. And you see it everywhere. And I think that... Uh, apps like or websites like Nextdoor have helped to facilitate the rise of and the popularity of these sorts of mechanisms. But I think it can't be disentangled from uh, this this idea that, yeah, children need to be monitored um, and, and homes need to be monitored. You know, homes are particularly sacred. And, and I see it all the time. You know, we bought a house in November and we have a Facebook group for the neighborhood. And all the time people are posting uh, pictures of folks who have kind of trespassed on their property, you know, at strange hours of the night. And, you know, they are capturing these images through ring technology or some sort of surveillance technology. And I have to think that a lot of that, you know, a lot of these people have children. A lot of that has to do with the idea that the home must be protected, the child must be protected. But mostly what they're talking about is property, right? Um, and, you know, the, the idea that if something goes missing from the car, you know, that has to be captured. And that, uh, you know, to me is, you know, kind of foolish. Um, but at the same time, it is something that has a lot of purchase. Um, and I think it, there's a, a slippery sort of slope. People conflate any sort of threat to property as threat to livelihood. 
Um, and yeah, I think that the, the child is kind of central to that, whether it's explicitly stated or not. There's the notion that, um, oh, children are sleeping in the house. You know, there's something particularly unnerving for, I think, white suburbanites, particularly um, for to have any sort of outsider, right? Out, um, any sort of individual who is uh, challenging the, the, the privacy uh, of their home, challenging the uh, sanctity of the home, the, the security of the home. And that has contributed to a great deal of, of different phenomena, whether it's the you know, explosion in, in, in gun sales uh, over the past you know, 40 years or 50 years. Um, but it, I think, goes back to this very notion of, of crime and victimhood as binary, as understandings of citizenship as binary, and children as particularly vulnerable in that kind of schematic, in that framework. The idea that, you know, yes, children are victims, kind of inherently they're vulnerable, particular children, that is, at least in, in one kind of form of, of um, kind of a political mindset. Um, and so the home is, I think, very critical to that sort of, of thing and the, the proliferation of certain forms of, of surveillance and, and technology, because a lot of these mechanisms are incredibly expensive. Um, you know, some cameras that you place outside your home, uh, alarm systems and, and the like, you know, these are almost invariably, I would reckon, uh, being purchased by, by well-to-do individuals because they have something to lose, or at least that's their impression. Um, and, and yes, I think it also, uh, just is not necessarily cognizant of the idea that yes, crime has, or the truth that crime has dissipated. And, um, you know, these sorts of things I think are a, a clear sort of overreaction. Was the child protection movement then blowback against the, the expanding of civil rights and not only for people of color, but everyone, including because there's a very there's a not only just implied, there's a stated gay pedophilia that they are gay pedophilia, gay uh, sexual abuse that they have and gay pedophilia that they had within this idea of stranger danger. So was this blowback against the expanding of civil rights, not only for people of color, but for everyone, including homosexuals, LGBTQI community, blowback against at least the very idea behind things like the Great Society, blowback against, you know, things like uh, the way the 60s and 70s youth activism was happening against this against the Vietnam War. Were civil rights turned into a threat to families leading to what Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow? Were all these threats made as threats to children? Yeah, I think so. There's this um, conflation of, and I'm borrowing from this historian at Cornell, uh, Jalili Kohler-Hausman, who I think quite astutely notes that there's this conflation in a lot of media discourses and political discourses of urban uprisings in the 60s, of, of civil rights, and of crime, right? Uh, street crime. So all of these things for a lot of folks become indistinguishable. And that leads to opposition to, as you indicated, the Great Society, the War on Poverty, all these different phenomena, and also, um, yeah, children's rights movement and the youth activism that was central to the African-American freedom struggle, to the gay rights movement, to women's liberation, to Red Power, uh, to Chicana Power. Um, etc. So yeah, I, it is in part uh, blowback or kind of backlash to to much of that. 
Um, but also it's it's kind of in, uh, inextricable from the rise of uh, economic restructuring, neoliberal economic restructuring. You know, there has to be a way in which the state manages individuals who kind of fall out of the market. And so the carceral state becomes a means by which to kind of control uh, certain segments of the population. And for, you know, uh, many of the actors in my study, you know, for um, those who are kind of targeting youth, I mean, they're targeting black youth in a particular way or non-white youth and they're uh, uh, approaching white youth in a different way. Uh, So even within kind of this blowback that you're talking about, there are um, you know, there, there are different dimensions to it. You know, there are, uh, different ways in which white youth are handled and, and others are handled. Uh, but there is this push to assert institutional authority, to reassert familial and parental authority, because yes, in part, this is a blowback to civil rights. Uh, but also there's this notion that the family is falling apart and a lot of that has this kind of economic dimension to it, this idea that the family can no longer um, you know, fend for itself, uh, so the family needs to be shored up. And one way in which to do that is, yes, to build up the carceral state, to manage those who threaten the family, and um, also to kind of safeguard the family itself from these putative uh, moral threats, um, and to, to allow the family, and you know, there are particular families that this is targeting to allow that family to uh, reproduce and to reproduce particular children who thus need to be safeguarded. I got two more questions for you, Paul. So I want to apologize to my producer, Alex, for running over. You write (laughs) that uh, uh, you point out that Save Our Children founder Anita Bryant and Moral Majority Leader Reverend Jerry Falwell, cultural commentators and policymakers increasingly focused on the normative, patriarchal, procreative family as a disciplinary matrix a site of social control, and a guarantor of social order. Well, it didn't seem to be working out too well. That's why people were seemed to be rebelling against it back in the 60s and 70s and for a long time beforehand. It, if it guarantees social order, then why is there so little order, not only within the nuclear family itself, but society in general? Why, is there, why should there be family fear instead of stranger danger when the nuclear family works so well? Wasn't the social... Disorder of the 60s in response to the patriarchal disciplinary mix of the nuclear family. So, nuclear family. So, why not? Why, or so, why, why believe in the nuclear family that fails? Why is there so much belief in this structure that seemingly doesn't work? Yeah, it's uh, it's a conundrum, and it's it's just because I would argue that that image of the nuclear family that is so ingrained in, uh, I think, the popular consciousness, um, you know, whether it's kind of the Don Draper family or the Leave it to Beaver family, uh, these ideas have such tremendous purchase and they're seductive. They're, they have an allure. You know, people want that uh, white picket fence um, and a, a nice house behind that fence. They want the 2.3 children. Um, and of course, a lot of people are excluded from that. Um, but for whatever reason, policymakers like the idea, and this is especially true, and I'm drawing on uh, Melinda Cooper, who's this political theorist who has quite brilliantly kind of explained why this is the case. Policymakers are seeking to, in this age of neoliberal austerity, to um, devolve a lot of state practices and, and state programs to the family. 
Um, and, you know, the shape of that family changes. You know, there are neoliberals who are in the 80s and, and into the 90s who are increasingly interested in folding in um, gay families, right, into that kind of ideal. Um, so, you know, that the I think in a lot of people in the gay rights movement, um, you know, and this is, I think, evidenced by the, the push for marriage equality, they want inclusion in that family, right? And this is an incredibly... A powerful construct, the idea that the family is kind of the basis for social order, even though, yes, all evidence um, suggests otherwise, but people want in. And that's why marriage equality, of course, there was pushback, but it's actually been, you know, it's been five years now since marriage equality was was legalized. Uh, but it, it hasn't really changed all that much because this idea that the family is kind of the principal basis of social order, this is what all people should strive for. Um, that is so firmly entrenched that it's very difficult to, to dislodge. And of course, a lot of gay rights activists said, well, you know, what if I don't want to get married? You know, what about people who actually, um, you know, don't want these state benefits? They don't want what they understand to be uh, a kind of um, unjust and and a discriminatory sort of um, structure or form. Uh, they don't want that to be the basis of order. Uh, but it is kind of uh, indelible. I think that policymakers, you know, in in both political parties, cannot seem to escape that sort of mold. And it's because you know the the notion of um, you know anything outside of the family, the community, um, you know, m different networks of kinship, different forms of kinship. Uh, these things smack of you know communism of of socialism, of totalitarianism, at least in a lot of people's minds. And that precludes any sort of different model, even though, you know, the family is, yeah, it's, it's always in crisis, right? It's, it's always going to be in crisis. Um, because, and especially in this moment of, of economic austerity of, uh, precarity where, you know, people are expected to do more with, with less, um, it's in, it's untenable and yet it, it cannot be, um, People can't think outside of that frame. Uh, I hope I answered that question. No, you did. You did. Uh, and we had the honor of interviewing Melissa Cooper a couple of years ago. She got up really early in the morning in Australia and spoke with us on the phone. So we really appreciate uh, Melissa being on our show in the past. And people can find that interview by searching on her name at thisishell.com. So if you want to hear, she's brilliant. Yeah. If you want to yeah. hear a continuation of this topic, yeah, it's really, really great. And Paul, uh, it'd be, I'd love to have your opinion of that interview too, because I probably did a horrible job. We've been speaking with historian <laughs> Paul Renfro, author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State. And you can follow Paul on Twitter at PM Renfro. One last question for you, Paul, and I swear we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You mentioned the very long history of partisan political exploitation of misrepresenting threats to children, dating back to the 19th century and threats by Native Americans. Are threats to others recast as threats to children in order to get those threats that do not actually affect children addressed? Can we expect the dismantling of police departments to be repackaged as a threat to children. Yes, and I think you're already seeing it. Um, there, I think that idea is also so firmly entrenched. There's this idea that police are this transhistorical sort of phenomenon when you know it, it's not really that old. Um, our particular kind of formation of, of police in the United States, it's actually quite novel. And 
yeah, I think that the notions of childhood and of the uh, ideal American family will be central to to these sorts of um, ideas, um, th- these sorts of pushes to prevent any kind of um, meaningful uh, dismantling or or change in in police departments or how we conceive of of crime. And that's something that you're seeing, obviously, on the right and also uh, with the um, with with Joe Biden. Right. I think he is also kind of using, um, if not explicitly, that sort of notion that um, you have to have police. Right. And I think just underlying uh, or underpinning that notion is that, um, you know, all all order, all social order uh, will collapse if police um, are, are not in some, uh, there's no police in some form or fashion. Um, and he actually wants to increase um, funding for police. It, it, and this is kind of a, a drawing or hearkening back, I think, to uh, his efforts in, in the 90s. So yes, I think childhood often is understood as politi- uh, apolitical uh, when it is anything but. It is uh, it inherently political, you know, who gets to be a child, uh, who gets childhood innocence, and uh, these are some of the things that I, I sought to uh, explore in the book. Do you think that that kind of manipulation, if it was done when it relates to police, do you think that that's cynical political manipulation of children? Totally. <laughs> right. Right. I just want to make sure everybody understood. I want to make sure that was clear before we end our interview. Paul, I cannot thank you enough. This is really a fantastic book, and I'm so glad that somebody has written this book because it's really important to recognize the impact that the Reagan administration and that the culture wars of the 1980s still has and still resonates to this day. Thank you so much for being on Thank our you. Show. And if, could I add just one, one sure, thing? Sure. I mean, the Yeah, if people actually wanted to, and I get at this in the conclusion, if people actually wanted to protect children, they would address poverty. They would address right. hunger. They would address educational inequality. These are threats that face children, especially at this moment in which 40 million people are unemployed, you know, there's a, a pandemic, um, you know, these are serious problems and they are ones that have proven intractable, but they are actually, uh, you know, there are easy fixes to this sort of thing um, if we were actually willing to, to be honest about it. Yeah. And you make this point of how, you know, the emotional when it comes to protecting children obfuscates the real structural issues that mm-hmm. are the actual threat to children. So everybody's got to go check out uh, Paul's book. Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood in the American Carceral State, and he does give a solution at the end. But I wanted to tease people, Paul, so you sell more <laughs> books. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it as well. Thanks so much, Chuck. Take care. Bringing you bong, hitting journalism. Since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Chuck Mertz. Hey, I said chirk. Alrighty. Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Elle is, what should Chuck, that's me, do to cure his stomach pain? What should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Wednesday, this is Hell Medical Face Mask. If you can't wait to see if you've won, you can get a mask by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. That's thisishell.com, and you can click on support. You can post your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, on Twitter. You can email it to us, but you got to have it to us by the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, because that's when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question mail? Yeah, what should Chuck do to cure his perpetual stomach pain? Kev S. says, I hear from sources high up, disinfectant is good for some conditions. Cool. If not to your taste, you could always try a ray of hope. Mm-hmm. Huh. I like that. Fabio Wells says, wear a kente cloth scarf oh, and God. kneel for eight minutes and 45 seconds. Oh, my God, dude. 
Did you see that image? Oh, yeah. Oh, my. I, I watched the video. Her trying to get back up afterwards is pretty Oh, funny. dude. Oh, that is so offensive. And the fact that all of them got together and they couldn't figure out it was offensive. Using somebody's culture as a prop. In the midst of that culture being threatened by police. Shane M says, uh, go see a doctor? Yeah. You can't. Okay? Uh, you can't. Rob B says, Chuck, you might, yeah, you need to get a sigmoidectomy, most mm -hmm. likely. Mm -hmm. Go see Dr. Estrada at Illinois Masonic. Yes. This is the person who gave me a very frightening email. And I kept Was that the one you were talking about uh, earlier today to me? Yeah. That oh, might... yeah. Don't get that thing. Yeah. Or maybe do get it. I don't yeah. Know. I don't know. It's I'm, not, I'm not a doctor. Uh, Todd K says, intermittent fasting. Wally R says, coffee enemas, no cream or sugar. <laughs> Definitely no cream or sugar. Those are things that will set off your diverticulitis. Uh, John M says, probiotics, despite his attachment to their enthusiasm, those amateur ones he's been using aren't <laughs> going to be able to do the job. Sarah M, uh, you know Sarah M, says, enough with trying to avoid all the bad seeds. Better to just become one. <laughs> Adam May says, I've got nothing funny or snarky to say about that, man. It sucks. I wish this country gave a damn about people like you who are important to so many of us and made treatment options available to you instead of paywalling your very life. So I guess my answer is, how about some decency and compassion for what ails you? I like how our lives have been paywalled. It's <laughs> really very good, Adam. Uh, Sheldon B says, eat more fiber. <laughs> Nikki says, look online for the most well-respected and highest rated gastroenterologist. I don't know what it is, and I'm not an expert, but I am a personal expert in the experience of GERD. Prevacid <laughs> is decent. I uh, have a gastroenterologist and uh, enterologist and uh, enterologist. Yeah, and she is far too physically attractive, so it's really it really throws me off every time I go in there because you know. This woman is about to do something to me that... I'm not following up anymore on this. I'm not going to ask any more questions about that. It's very disturbing. Uh, Ladio says, strawberry phosphate. Uh, Chris L says, this is a shit post. Is, is Laddie from the 17th century? Do we know? <laughs> uh, and then uh, Elisa H says, Miralax daily. Ugh. Also make sure drinking water, if it is diverticulosis, it's really painful. You could have uh, diverticulitis and need antibiotics. Mm. Finally, Brad R says, walk it off, slash, rub some dirt on it. <laughs> Now, that's a good answer. Play through pain, as Gordy Howe said. Again, email us your answer to Chuck at thisishell.com, Alex at thisishell.com, Facebook it to us, DM us via Twitter, or email it to us before the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, because we are announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now during tomorrow's Moment of Truth. Jeff urges us to stop being afraid of nature. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live streaming show at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at This Is Hell. Uh, well, before Jeffy, we're going to have A.J. Singh Chaudhry. He'll talk about his new Baffler piece, We're Not In This Together. There is no universal politics of climate change. And I think this is probably about the fifth or sixth Chaudhry we've had on the show, but one uh, probably the first in about 15 years. Tune in to tomorrow's streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time show at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. To hear all of the rest of the answers to the question from hell and find out if you've won. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to Paul Renfro. The planet's on fire. So, yeah, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>